As a deadline looms on whether the so-called Uruwera 4 will be retried for participating in an organised criminal group, this Radio New Zealand Insight programme examines the contentious law under which the police first plan to take a prosecution. Does the Terrorism Suppression Act need a rewrite? A major police operation is underway in Fakatane. I saw a dozen or perhaps more officers wearing the black combat gear that you associate with the armed defenders squad. I parked up and a short while later, maybe half a dozen marked patrol cars I saw leaving the station in an indication that something has been going on here. This is how Radio New Zealand broke the news of nationwide police raids on the morning of October the 15th, 2007. Further details about the operation emerged as the day wore on. The police have arrested 17 people in major weapons raids across the country, targeting what they're describing as military-style weapons training activities. We have today taken enforcement action in connection with an operation we've had running over the course of 2006-2007. The training camps have been located in the eastern Bay of Plenty. Police have today executed a series of search warrants across the country seeking firearms and other items. The search warrants were obtained under the Summary Proceedings Act to search for evidence of the Commission of Offences against the Arms Act and the Terrorism Suppression Act. Less than a month later, the terrorism prosecution was stopped in its tracks by the then Solicitor General, David Collins, QC. I've concluded that the legislation is unnecessarily complex, incoherent and as a result almost impossible to apply to the domestic circumstances observed by the police in this case. Because of my concerns about the real difficulties that exist in trying to apply the Terrorism Suppression Act to events such as those observed by the police in this case, I will be suggesting that the Attorney-General consider referring that act to the Law Commission with a view to seeing whether or not the Act should be completely reviewed. But half a decade on, what's happened to that review? I'm Tim Graham, and in this Radio New Zealand Insight, I explore the state of the country's counter-terrorism laws and the appetite for overhauling them in the wake of the Uruwera raids. Where has the case left relations between the police and the Tuhoi tribe, and what's been learned from the first use of the Terrorism Suppression Act in a New Zealand police operation? The reality of terrorism was brought into sharp focus by the events of September the 11th, 2001 in the United States. I was just standing here watching the World Trade Center after the first plane hit. I just saw a second plane come in from the south and hit the south tower. I can't tell you anything more than that. I saw the plane hit the building. Prior to the 9-11 attacks, a New Zealand human rights lawyer, Tim McBride, says there seemed to be little public interest here in terrorism laws. Interestingly, there had been a bill before the New Zealand Parliament pre-9-11 dealing with terrorist bombings, and not one submission was received on that bill. So pre-9-11, we, we seem to be fairly relaxed about things. But the attacks on New York, Washington and Pennsylvania sparked a torrent of lawmaking by governments across the globe. Tim McBride says New Zealand's terrorism, bombings and financing bill, which previously got little attention, underwent a huge expansion. A ramping up, certainly in terms of major changes to that bill, which ultimately became the Terrorism Suppression Act. Originally there was to be no public input 
but after some public pressure, there were about 140 submissions. I was involved in one of them, uh, raising some major concerns about that bill that created a, a number of new offences, terrorist bombing, financing of terrorism, heavy-duty offences carrying, what, life imprisonment as a possible sentence. John Ipp specialises in counter-terrorism at Auckland University's Law School, but is currently on sabbatical in the British city of Oxford. He points out that some aspects of New Zealand's anti-terrorism legislation were imposed on the country. The 9-11 attacks resulted in the United Nations Security Council making what was at the time a quite unprecedented Security Council resolution that actually um, obliged all member states to, um, in many cases, make changes to their domestic legislation, which is something very unusual. The Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Select Committee set a cracking pace in considering the fledgling law. It's nice when it's not blowing. Uh, yeah, the Kiss of the Northerly whips in here a bit. This is the Pahatanui end of the Porirua Harbour. The former Labour MP, Graham Kelly, who led that committee, now enjoys a life far removed from the cut and thrust of the halls of power. Given the tense international atmosphere at the time, he says the speed at which the legislation was handled was appropriate. The British had passed this legislation within a very, very short time. The Canadians, I think, within 48 hours had passed some legislation. We never thought of New Zealand being a target for terrorism, but we had to do our bit as good international citizens, and that was the approach that we took. We truncated the timing of the process by inviting a whole bunch of organisations to come and make submissions to us, including organisations that we knew would be opposed to legislation. So that was done and it was referred back to the House in about half or less than half the time it would normally take for a bill. I think we may have dealt with this in a, in a matter of months, uh, two months maybe, as against six or seven months. The second and third readings, as well as the committee stage of the bill, took place under urgency before the Terrorism Suppression Act was passed into law. But the lawyer Tim McBride says more legislation was yet to come. It just seemed never-ending. You'd deal with one where you've got a group of people doing pro bono work, trying to do submissions on complex pieces of legislation, and you'd deal with one and you'd feel a sense of exhaustion and you'd traipse off down to Wellington or you'd take part in one of these awful audio conferences and you might get a few tidbits in terms of some of your suggestions, whatever, in your submission. And then, lo and behold, there'd be another bill. Certainly 2003, four, five. they just kept coming and coming. When it came to putting the Terrorism Suppression Act to use for the first time in the 2007 Uruweta case, it wasn't plain sailing. Auckland University's John Ipp explains why. If someone uh, decides to recruit members for Al-Qaeda, it's uh, fairly easy um, to make the legislation work. What was the difficulty in the Uruwera case is, of course, we weren't dealing with a designated terrorist entity. If one discovers a bunch of people belonging to no known terrorist group and they're running around in the bushes with guns, then how does the legislation work then? Dr Jim Veach is a senior lecturer in security studies at Massey University. So when 9-11 happened, I was actually teaching a course on religion and violence at the third year level, and that was 
In 2009, he was made a Fellow of the United Kingdom's Royal Society of Arts in recognition of his studies into terrorism and counter-terrorism. Dr Veach says the problem is trying to pinpoint exactly what the crime is. The real crux of the thing is what is terrorism? And there's been a lot of difficulty. The UN itself has never offered a, a definition of terrorism. There are well over 100 different definitions of terrorism that are used in the academic literature. It's a very slippery area, and so the slipperiness is only contained if you have a, an organisation like Al-Qaeda in your, in, in your headlights. Then you know what you're dealing with, but if you're dealing with it in, in theory and so on, it's not very clear at all. Some critics of the Terrorism Suppression Act say amendments to it in 2005 and 2007 have decreased the amount of parliamentary and judicial oversight of the law. But John Ipp from Auckland University says there are legitimate questions to ask about whether it's currently too hard to take a terrorism prosecution in New Zealand. One thing we could look at is whether we have set the bar too high. I'm a little bit sort of cautious about saying this because there's a very natural tendency, particularly when you're dealing with the first time an act was ever invoked. It's like, oh, it didn't work, therefore there must be something wrong with the law, therefore we need to change it. And I think one needs to be very careful um, about saying things like that because there are other possible explanations such as police didn't do a good enough job collecting evidence. We could look at possibly trying to simplify the operation of the act somewhat, but what we're essentially saying uh, there is that you should make the offences easier to prove, but then one has to be wary of the danger of, well, you're possibly in the territory of catching people that you actually don't intend to catch. John Ipp says the government could consider becoming more proactive about designating terrorist groups within the law, but the lawyer Tim McBride agrees that undesirable consequences could flow from making prosecution easier. Well, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to make it more comprehensive, to lower the thresholds? That could certainly, you could simplify the definition of, of terrorist act. So there are simpler definitions available, but that makes a pretty low threshold. And there was real concern when we made submissions on the bill as originally introduced in terms of the impact on individuals' right to peaceful protest, which is one of our fundamental human rights and one in our Bill of Rights, of course. So if the law covering domestic terrorism is perhaps too unclear and difficult to prosecute under, what can the authorities do? Dr Jim Veach from Massey believes there's plenty of alternative legal firepower that can be put to use instead. I think we've just concluded that in New Zealand, with four and a half million people, that we trying to play around with that sort of act is not going to be useful to us. The 2007 Act builds on other aspects of things but doesn't actually alter the core of the original Act. It's, it's a problem. So what we're seeing is that New Zealand is proceeding down the Crimes Act track, trying to deal with all the sorts of incidents, a framework for all the sorts of incidents that the, the, the Terrorism Act was designed to deal with but deal with it more sophisticatedly and professionally under the Crimes Act. Dr Veach is scathing about the way the Terrorism Suppression Act arrived on the law books. It's a really a botched up piece of work because it was done in a hurry and it was done because everyone was very apprehensive of what could happen. When 9-11 happened, New Zealand didn't know if we were going to be caught up in the wash from that. And so the law was put into place very rapidly and without a lot of careful thought as to what its future use would be, 
because people were very apprehensive. The legislative side was very primitive. It was done on the run in order to deal with anything like a sleeper cell that would rise up here. We'd have to deal with people who suddenly appeared on our doorsteps with the intention to cause trouble. Following the 2007 raids, civil libertarians described the select committee which let the Terrorism Suppression Act pass as a group of lazy legislators. The former Labour MP Graham Kelly stands by the work he and other MPs did on the Act. At the time, we didn't see that it was either badly drafted or unclear. The intention was to try to support the international community, to eliminate terrorism, to find methods to do that. And that's what we set out to do, and that's what the bill set out to do. It's all very well ten years later, some bright spark uh, telling us that we missed the boat. I'd challenge any of them. If they were there at the time, they wouldn't have done much different, because they wouldn't have known. And I find that kind of smart-aleck talk from people easy to say ten years later. But at the time, we had the best brains that we had giving us advice. We looked at what other countries had done. And that's, uh, and then we legislated based on that, but making the changes as we thought appropriate. I've got no apologies to make at all for the way we went about the task and what we finally came up with. The former Prime Minister, Helen Clark, said the Terrorism Suppression Act became what she called a bit of a camel and was less than perfectly designed at the end of its way through Parliament. She said the Act had its origins in international terrorism issues, which weren't particularly appropriate for a domestic case. In ordering a review of the legislation, she said she hoped the Law Commission would give some good advice about how the law should be applied to terrorism on New Zealand soil. But that work was stopped in its tracks by the former Justice Minister, Simon Power, who was part of the last national government. His successor, Judith Collins, had this to say when asked about the current status of the review. What we're doing at the moment is I'm going to wait till these matters actually go through the court processes. So I'm not going to comment really further on that because we may look at uh, the matter after the case has been concluded. But despite what Judith Collins implies, the review isn't on hold in the minds of those at the Law Commission. From its 19th floor offices overlooking Wellington Harbour, the Commission's President Sir Grant Hammond says its review of the Terrorism Suppression Act barely got off the ground. We did get started. We hadn't issued any study papers or indeed come to any firm views internally. A certain amount of preparatory work was done. Uh, but then the Minister indicated that a review of the law in this area wasn't an urgent matter. And in view of other priorities, it was first put on hold and then discontinued altogether with the agreement of the Minister. We got a few months into the project. You can accumulate a lot of paper in these sort of exercises. There's only a box or two of paper on this one. It was all very preliminary stuff. Although the Law Commission can initiate its own reviews, Sir Grant says that won't happen in this case because the office already has a heavy workload. He says he's unaware of any pressing reason to restart the review and adds that to do so on the basis of just one case isn't usually the norm. One swallow doesn't always make a summer. The fact of the matter is that we have not been plagued in this country, fortuitously, 
uh, with a lot of incidents of this kind, yes, they are difficult when they happen, and certainly this one, the Uruwera case, has, has certainly engaged a lot of people. But the fact of the matter is that we haven't had a lot of incidents Normally in, in law reform, a, a single kind of incident one can be concerned about, but just how far you intrude. You normally look for a pattern of things that, that needs alteration. Those in Tuhoi country disagree with that point of view. I am the chief negotiator for Ngai Tuhoi, settling the historical claims with the Crown. We're here in the main office of the Kotahia Tuhoi, so our office is located at uh, 22 Tuhua Street, the main road between Whakatane and Taneatua. Tamati Kruger says gaps that became evident when the Terrorism Suppression Act was used in conjunction with the 2007 raids haven't been plugged. That's our worry about the Act, that it has not got disciplines around it and, and controls and oversight. So it can be used in such a way that it will hurt and injure innocent people. So that's our worry about it. And also how it degrades the civil rights and liberties of ordinary citizens. Uh, how it is most intrusive and that there is little control over the reasoning and motives and the, the level of proof that, that such intrusion is required. Tamati Kruger says the Uruweta raids were an extravagant misjudgment. He says there's still a deep hurt in the community about what happened that October day in 2007 and a mistrust of the police which is seeping into younger generations. The police relationship with Tuhue is non-existent. There is no trust, no confidence, there's no sincerity in that relationship, no depth to it. It's a relationship that is not future-proof. You couldn't get more bad than this. We have not received any indication at all from the police that they want to participate in the repairing of that relationship. Sometimes when you leave matters like apologies too long, they get stale and become insincere. Uh, there are some people that believe that an apology is, uh, is appropriate, but I think the vast majority of Tuhue do not see any point in it. For many Tuhue families, they will never ever forgive the police, and they will pass that attitude down many generations within their family. Aruatoki local Maria Tuhaka says the police have been making efforts to reconnect with local children. Yeah, I know a couple of kids that actually wanted to be police, but I think this has changed it all for them now. They don't want to be a police. Yeah, they just go, oh, they're just bad. They send constables out to our kura, to Ruatoki school now. She's sort of picking our kids up a little bit. Constable Trish, she tries to pick their wairua up with what they're going through. But I suppose if you also talk to her about what, how, what she's experienced, yeah, she will tell you that they were traumatised. Maria Tuhaka's neighbour, Paura Pito, says the raids have reopened old wounds. All of the Taniatua Rugby Club was covered in police cars, trucks, helicopters. And when I went up to Taniatua, it was blocked off, you weren't allowed in. They had cops right there. At the end of the day, for me, it's just gone and made our hapu angry. To me, it's brought out what happened to Ruakenana and Te Koti back in our days, how the park has invaded Mauna Pohatu. It's like the raids that they've done here. It's brought a reenactment of that. It's just gone and woken our 
our narcos up and our and our thoughts my thoughts are we hate the police but the union for frontline police officers questions why tuhoi is so aggrieved by the raids the police association's president greg o'connor says the iwi was never the target given that only two of the four people who stood in the dock were tuhoi and given that less than half of the people originally charged were tuhoi I don't think it's a two-hoy issue. I think it's an issue about groups of individuals who embarked on a series of actions that were intercepted by police. I would say that it should be looked at for what it was, which was a group activity, not anything to do with any particular iwi. Aruatoki Komatua Pakinikora has been invited to several meetings with senior police officers since 2007, but he's been dismayed by their approach. I guess this is where one of the biggest problems is with Crown agencies is that they don't understand tradition and insensitivities that our people have to face. They uh, bought a, a police car and picked three of us up and took us to a meeting in Rotorua. Uh, in a back room of a motel where Howard Broad was sitting and a uh, respected Waikato Kaumatu, which uh, mihid us on to Whenua de Belongs to Te And uh, we uh, expressed our total dissatisfaction over that total process because, well, why didn't we have the meeting here? The Independent Police Conduct Authority has completed a draft report into Operation 8, which is now with Police National Headquarters for a response. The IPCA won't confirm when the report will be made public. Pakinikora helped to broker interviews between Ruatoki locals and the IPCA in the early stages of its investigation. I chaired the meeting where Justice Law got out and two police investigators came in and they were wanting the opportunity to uh, interview all those people that were affected. We were expecting that report to be out within six to 12 months so the terror raids happened in 2007, we're now in 2012, and we still haven't seen no report. Terrible, terrible, because I really do think that the Crown have actually instructed Justice Law Goddard to withhold a report to, after the, the outcome of these cases, which to me is not the process that was outlined to us. Insight had hoped to speak to the Police Commissioner, Peter Marshall, and Superintendent Wallace Homaha, the General Manager of Māori, Ethnic and Pacific Services for Police. Police National Headquarters declined to make either officer available, citing in part the fact the Police Conduct Authority had yet to release its report, although the work has been completed. The Commissioner at the time of the Uruwera raids, Howard Broad, also declined an interview, but told Insight that, at some point, he will return to speak to the Tuhoi people. The Assistant Commissioner for Counter-Terrorism at the time of the raids, John White, also refused an interview. The only comment available until the end of all the court processes was a written statement from Peter Marshall. In it, he says... For police, the investigation was never about Tuhoi. It was strictly about holding people throughout the country to account for unlawful criminal activities in the Yurawiras. Of the 17 originally arrested as a result of Operation 8, only three had tribal affiliations to Tuhoi, and the others were Pākehā. However, we acknowledge that the relationship with Tuhoi was damaged as a by-product of the nationwide criminal investigation. We regret that, and we value our relationship with Tuhoi. 
We do our best to learn from every operation, and we continue to evolve our operating practices and procedures. We will do our best to repair that relationship. Some of those who study race relations believe the difficulties may have arisen because of problems in the relationship between police and Tuhoi. Many of us do not speak Māori as much as possible. We probably all put our hands up and own up to some of that. Auckland University of Technology's Rawiri Taunui is among the delegates at this conference for Māori tertiary educators. He's an adjunct professor of Indigenous Studies and believes intimidation is an element in relations between the police and Tuhoi. Some of the police probably think that they're a bit scary and I think that uh, a lot of Pākehā New Zealanders would find them quite scary. I mean, when they do pōwhiri, it's unlike uh, some of our, our more polite urban-type pōwhiris. You've got people running around semi-naked and it's, you might say it's full-on. You know, they're different, but that's not, not bad. Personally, I think that is really great. Rawiri Taunui has also been considering what the fallout of the Uruwera raids case might mean for race relations in New Zealand. The Uruwera affair has damaged uh, national race relations in the sense that there are now a lot of Māori people who would be quite mistrusting of Pākehā because what they, they believe, what they perceive is the Uruwera raids were just a repeat of the Māori wars of the 1870s, 140 years ago, and things haven't moved on. First lesson here, one is we have to rethink our terrorist legislation and the second one is when issues like this come up the police have to be a little bit more trusting of the structures that already exist to investigate what's going on. So when the first reports came out about the wānanga, rather than crawling through the bush and taking secret videos, they should have talked to a couple of local elders and got advanced intelligence and then this would never have happened. 128 Abel Smith Street is a well-known rental property pretty much in the centre of Wellington with a long-standing reputation for housing activists. This was one of the addresses raided by the police on October the 15th, 2007, early in the morning. And with me is the former police inspector Ross Morant. Ross, what does this property represent in, in light of these raids? It's a house which Wellingtonians know to be occupied by activists. This was the showpiece of the Tuhoi debacle. Much of it was happening in Tuhoi, but uh, here in the city this was an opportunity for the police to uh, show who was boss and let all the neighbours see that they were running the town. Ross Morant's two decades in policing included stints in the armed defenders squad and as second in command of the Riot Control Red Squad during the 1981 Springbok tour before he turned to a career in politics. He's been one of the most trenchant critics of the way police handled the raids. The culture that exists within the police leads them to draw conclusions from evidence that they gather which is often distort. It's because of this inward-focused, introverted mentality. The concerns I have had have been vindicated very much by the fact that so many of those who were arrested initially have not been charged and in fact it's pretty clear that the crimes that were being committed could have been dealt with under the Arms Act and Crimes Act and in fact were but to say that they were terrorists and were a threat to the country in my view is to draw a very long bow. Ross Morant says the police operate in a cloistered decision-making environment which existed before he joined the force, while he was there, and which he claims continues to this day. He questions the extent to which the police have learned from the Uruwera case. 
Well, the whole thing's bizarre, I think, and one would have hoped that as a result of the long litigation process, so many of those arrested being uh, let go and not charged, the police would have learned something from this outrageous behaviour. But only recently we had this dot-com fiasco. Now, look, there you have a similar sort of mentality where the police arrive at someone's home in helicopters, bandanas, submachine guns, jumping out of helicopters, kicking doors in, terrifying a pregnant woman and her family. Was there any need for that? And I say no. No more than there was a need for the ostentatious and outrageous Tuhoi raids. The disappointing thing is that dot-com suggests that they haven't learned. But the Police Association's Greg O'Connor says an objective look at police actions shows officers are beyond criticism because all along they had judicial sign-off on their work. Much of the attention is focused on police because we are the easy target. Whereas attention perhaps should be directed at some of the decision making through the process. Not least of all was the fact that the police always, at every step of the way, had the sign-off of high court judges before they did anything, including putting the video on the land, even though, as we now find out, there was no legal basis for that, something that fortunately has now been hopefully rectified by the Surgeon Surveillance Bill. In August last year, a Supreme Court ruling that police acted unlawfully when they secretly filmed people in 2007 meant that charges against 13 of the 17 arrested in the Uruweta raids had to be dropped. The government responded by introducing temporary police surveillance laws it said were needed to avoid dozens of important police investigations being scuppered. Those laws have expired within the past few days. In their place is the new Search and Surveillance Act, which Massey's Jim Veach says can tie in with the Terrorism Suppression Act. But it can also be useful to strengthen the Anti-Terrorism Suppression Act because it actually gives police and law enforcement agencies a lot more official power than they've had previously. It would probably have meant that a lot more material that's now sealed from public under the Solicitor General's instructions. You would expect that a lot more of that would have been available to the court and maybe that changes uh, some of the way in which the prosecution was handled and the defence was handled. Greg O'Connor from the Police Association downplays the impact the raids have had on relations between the police and Tuhoi. Time is a great healer. Any apology? Given this was never really a Tuhoi issue, I would say probably not. I think time is a great healer. Look, I don't. What, what exactly would an apology be for? Tuhoi's Tamati Kruger says that's ludicrous. The person obviously has amnesia as to what happened before the trial. You need to go back four and a half years and then count up how many Tuhoi houses were raided and damaged and the lives that were disturbed. Time is a, a, is a great healer, but time does not do it all by itself. The final point in the statement from the Police Commissioner Peter Marshall was that police do not regret the action they took. What we will not do is resile from the purpose and primary intention of the investigation, which was to hold individuals to account by gathering evidence, bringing charges and putting matters before the court. Police believed at the time, and are still of the view, that based on the intelligence 
decisive action had to be taken for the safety of people. Last month, the jury convicted the Uruweta four on firearms charges, but couldn't agree on whether they were part of an organised criminal group. The Crown has until May the 9th to decide whether to pursue a retrial on that matter. The four are currently on bail and will be sentenced on May the 24th. I'm Tim Graham, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us. Our Twitter handle is rnz underscore insight. The programme was written and presented by me, Tim Graham. Additional reporting was by Rosemary Rangi Tawira. It was produced by Philip Atolli, and technical production was by Colette Jansen.